Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where we will explore lifelong learning and the pleasures of intellectual development. My guest today is Dr. Zena Hitz, who earned her PhD at Princeton and is a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Her book, Lost in Thought, has been widely discussed, including in the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune, El Mundo, and the Irish Times. It's been translated into multiple languages. She received the Hyatt Prize in the Humanities in 2020 and is the founder and president of the Catherine Project. And we'll talk about the Catherine Project in the course of our conversation. But first, here's Zena. And Zena, I'm so happy to have you here because this practice that you've identified, this process that a lot of people actually go through without even realizing it's a practice is so valuable. Thanks so much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's learning for its own sake. That's one way of describing the practice. Yes. And uh, I think it's something you find in the youngest children, and it's something that everyone from any walk of life can uh, find a way into and use and cultivate as a resource, uh, whatever However their their life turns out, uh, whatever its vicissitudes, its ups and downs, and uh, wherever they start from. Well, this practice that you, that you write about is something that is quite barrier-free, and that is what I like about it. You know, it's class-free, color-neutral, how much money you have or don't have doesn't matter, what your education is does not matter. It's this process of being curious. That's right. If you'd like, I could begin with an example yes. uh, by a story. And it's it's the story that I've gone back to again and again in talking about my work. And it's based actually on a, uh, a there's a novel called The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barbary. But there's a wonderful film called The Hedgehog or La Horizon, where the central character, her name is Renee, She's the concierge of a upper-class apartment building in Paris. She, of course, herself being a concierge, being like a, a building superintendent, is working class. She's very unusual for a, for a film. She's middle-aged. She's a little pudgy. She wears slouchy cardigans. She's clearly going gray. Her hair's, Her face is getting wrinkled. She is not a picture-perfect movie star. And she puts on a front of just what everyone expects her to be in the building. Someone frumpy, cranky, and interested only in getting the job done. But she has a secret life. 
And her secret life is pictured. It's it's so beautiful in the film. I highly recommend it. Where she has a hidden room behind her kitchen. It's stuffed with books. And she retreats into her room. And she reads philosophy, literature, you name it. Everything under the sun. And two residents of the building. One is a, a 12-year-old girl named Paloma who is sort of fed up with the rat race that even at her age she can see is everyone around her is involved in. And uh, this idea that only achievement matters, only success matters. So she finds Renee and she finds, she sees the door through the little window into the portal of the, the supervisor's lodge. And she says, what's behind the door? She knows that something is there. They form a very deep friendship and also a new Japanese resident who's also, uh, for obvious reasons, on the outside of this upper-class French building. He also finds a close affinity with her. So these three people form these very close friendships on the basis of something other than the social class that divides them, something which is very human, very profound, and which takes them through whatever happens to them in their life. So that's why... My first example of learning for its own sake, it's a refuge from the world. It's a, a way of retreating from social diminishment, whether that's by social class or by race or what have you, and or by middle age for that matter. I think as hey, I, hey, I, careful. <laughs> I, I think as I move closer into middle age, I think I think a lot about the diminishments of middle age, especially for women. And it's a way to find one's dignity uh, that is beyond all of that and to form uh, bonds of communion with others. As you're talking, the words quiet elegance came to mind, that in this space of learning, in the space of contemplation and the pursuit of the intellect, there's this quiet elegance that emerges. I think that's the perfect set of descriptors for Renee, and it's it's a, a kind of elegance that's hard won from her circumstances, since in most respects, of course, she's not elegant. Yes. She's uh, slouchy, frumpy, etc. Or I'm using the disparaging terms. Um, she's informal. She's relaxed. <laughs> she's middle-aged. That would be the, the non-judgmental ways of putting it. But she, she has this poise. She has this center. She has this center, which is her life of reading and thinking and um, the world of books. And that gives her a kind of elegance um, that uh, is much greater, I think, than ordinary elegance. You know, well, you don't know, but I'm going to say <laughs> something that when we talk about the things that make us happy, that what research has shown that makes us happy and the values in action that the VIA, which was Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson, two of the grandfathers of positive psychology, they talk about a love of lifelong learning as being one of those strengths or one of those predictors of people who self-report as being happier or more satisfied with their lives. That makes perfect sense to me. And I'll tell you why. The world that I come from originally, where I was trained as a scholar, is classical Greek philosophy, and Plato and Aristotle are sort of the big figures yeah. from classical philosophy. And what they both argued was that it work, um, you know, just in doing something for the sake of something else. So working for money or going to the grocery store to buy milk, you know, most of what we do is for the sake of an end. It's instrumental. 
Um, but if all our lives are things that are just instrumental or just means to ends, if it's all just going to the grocery store or all just working for money, then our lives don't make any sense. So we need some activity that in which what we do culminates where we can say, this is the reason I'm alive. This yeah. is what I was doing everything else for. And they thought it was learning, Plato and Aristotle. They thought it was contemplation that did that. Um, and I, I, you know, the... I think depending on how broad you want to take it, that contemplation and that learning, I think it's absolutely true. I agree. And the definition of learning and contemplation is very individual as well. I think that's right. So, you know, I just gave this example, told the story about this woman who reads a lot of books. That's one of the main examples. And I teach at a college where we read a lot of old books. So that's an example that's dear to my heart. Um, but another of my favorite stories is about a man named John Baker. Now, this is a real-life story, not a fictional story. John Baker grew up in England in the middle of the 20th century. He worked at uh, the Automobile Association office, so the British equivalent of AAA. Um, couldn't be a more boring kind of paper-pushing job that you could imagine. Um, and he never went to college or university. Uh, he never got a higher degree. But he loved literature, um, and he got very interested in peregrine falcons and rode around on his bicycle, um, tracking the peregrine falcons in his region, which is the Essex region. Uh, and he followed them on bicycles. He made charts. He made maps. He took journals. Uh, he made drawings. He collected every little, everything he could learn about these birds with his bare eyes. Um, he, he took in. Uh, he did this for 10 years in his spare time outside of work, outside of his office. Um, and then he wrote this incredible book called The Peregrine. It's uh, almost like a prose poem uh, where he really confronts what it means to be a human being, trying to look at a natural animal, a natural creature, um, trying to be a part of nature, um, but also our failures to really be able to enter into the world of animals. Uh, so it's very profound. It's very beautiful. And it's 10 years of this office worker following birds around on a bicycle. <laughs> and, and that's a very, that doesn't involve books. Uh, it involves just looking at what's around you in the world with, with great care and with great attention and really trying to understand what you're seeing. To that point, I have a question for you about washing dishes. <laughs> my favorite topic yes and the restoration of your own intellectual life <laughs> yes that question is how does washing how did washing dishes restore my intellectual life you know i um i worked as a scholar as an academic for some years i you know i was one of these kids i went straight from college to grad school i was in grad school for literally nine years in classical philosophy uh i went straight into teaching and as a result, I, um, I, had a, I was a kind of distorted person in many ways, as I think any particular activity that you're devoted to wholeheartedly when you're young can do. I think it happens to athletes. It happens to um, people who, who go whole hog into any career. Um, so I, I got increasingly sort of disillusioned and felt like my work didn't really matter. It didn't really connect with what I cared about. Um, 
And so I, I picked up and left. I joined a, a religious community in, in rural Ontario. It's a, a Roman Catholic community called Madonna House. And there it was all about manual labor. So we had a library, a Goodreader's library. Um, and there were some quite interesting people from all walks of life. Um, but I couldn't do that thing, which I had trained myself to do my whole life anymore. And I had to find another way to um, live my life of the mind. And that was a wonderful opportunity for me to enter into the intellectual life of ordinary people. So for me, it's the it was wash. I did a lot of washing dishes, <laughs> washing dishes, sweeping floors, uh, emptying the trash, cooking. I did some refinishing of antiques and refinishing of furniture, some restoration of uh, old objects. But whatever I was doing, I was my mind was left free to just think about things, to take in whatever was going on in the current moment, whatever I'd read in the past, whatever stories I'd heard, whatever guests had been at the table. And uh, it was an incredibly profound experience because it, it balanced me. It, it put my mind in a place that was more incarnate, more in everyday life. And it helped me to see how, just how available intellectual life is uh, for everybody, even for people who have, strictly speaking, very little free time. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break. And then when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Zena Hits. We're talking about Lost in Thought, the Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. To learn more, please visit xenahits.net on Twitter at Zena Hits. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Zena Hitz. We're exploring lifelong learning and the pleasures of intellectual development. Let's get back to it. Zena, before the break, you wanted to go into another story about speaking with mothers, and I would love for you to pick up where we've left off. Yes, thank you so much, Lisa. I was what I was thinking about was how how much trouble we have with all of the busyness of contemporary life, all of the hectic character of it, all of the multiple tasks that are crowding in us at any given time, and. One of the things that I discovered in the monastery was the balancing effect of certain kinds of manual tasks. So for me, the the paradigm case of someone who is pushed in a million directions and has hardly any time to think is uh, these moms who I, who, talk, who I talk to who have young children who are always looking for ways to uh, feel less like they're being used up in their circumstances and more to connect with who they are as human beings, who they once were. And maybe they don't have time to read a whole book at this stage when the kids are really little, but they can gather little snatches of things to read, things to think about, things to contemplate. And 
that was the point that I was trying to make. Just that anyone's, no matter their walk of life, can find these these spaces and tap into that capacity to to contemplate and to learn and to understand. In your book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, you write about uselessness. And I would love for you to talk with us about that, because we are taught in the Western world that all things we do should somehow be useful. Yeah, well, as an educator, as someone in the education sector, it's something you hear all the time. So everything has to be useful. Every piece of learning has to be for an end. It has to be training you for a job. It has to have a number, a metric, a learning outcome. It has to contribute to your income. It has to be useful for this. It has to be useful for that. And I think that way of thinking can is very destructive to the kind of the dimension of humanity that I'm trying to bring out, where what matters is having the leisure to ponder something which may not seem like it matters at the time. It could be the most pointless little detail. I mean, why do peregrine falcons matter? Um, <laughs> why do Russian novels matter? You can't plug them into some algorithm and get cash out of the other end in any obvious way. And I think when we think about learning that way, we're also thinking of ourselves that way. We're diminishing ourselves into cash generators. So the, the idea of learning for its own sake was was where I first, or first came to in thinking about this, that there's something about just thinking about the useless things, thinking about rocks, thinking about birds, thinking about old books, thinking about, you know, in my college, we read ancient treatises on mathematics. Now, there is nothing more useless in the world. It's it's ancient. It's, so to speak, obsolete. Um, but I'm telling you, it's it's a journey into another world to read these old books of mathematics. And it it shapes our our inner lives. It shapes our capacities to understand and to and to see and to imagine. And it helps us to be uh, to grow and develop as human beings. I think if you think about everything that every kind of value that you might want to produce, it's going to have to culminate in that. It's going to have to be something which makes life more rich and full for a human being. And part of what I want to do is to bring our attention back to that. What's good for us? What do we care about? What develops us? What helps us to grow? I will share with you a secret learning pleasure that falls into this category, and that is weeding. Ah, yes, Perfect. Yes. Getting, yes. Getting on one's hands and knees and weeding and paying close attention to the vast amount of life that resides in that soil. That is the perfect example. I was thinking about this just last summer. There's a particular type of weed that grows in my flower bed. And I decided one year I was just going to try to root out every last bit of it, <laughs> you know. And so I got, it was on my hands and knees. I didn't have many tools. And part of what I was trying to figure out is where does this plant go? How does it work? What's its shape? How does it feed? You know, how is it like or unlike other plants? And you also just in the in the most basic way, you're in the world of things that grow and in the world of vegetation, which in some ways is very comforting and familiar. In other ways, it's um, kind of gross and weird and can even be frightening in certain ways. Uh, and I, anyway, I think weeding is, 
reading is a perfect example. It's something which in a way is a means to an end, but it also opens up whole dimensions of life to us and helps us to see better. Yes. And it's so relaxing. Like who knew, yeah. right? Just yeah, that, I know. That, I know. <laughs> that process of just sort of getting one's hands dirty and observing this very microcosmic environment is this practice that I interpret what you're describing. I think that's right. And I, I just want to, to correct cor- my own course a little bit in case I sound like I'm describing something which is automatic. I do think that thinking about this type of contemplation should motivate those of us who have people in our hire, who have, um, who can hire and fire people who run small companies and so on. Um, because I think the, the workload for many people is, is extremely severe. So if I have to weed, it's one thing for me to weed my garden on a, a Saturday afternoon. I don't really have to do it. I can stop when I want. But if, if we're asking people to undertake tasks that are, uh, totally results directed, then we're, we're diminishing that capacity of theirs to um, reach into their humanity. So I think that's just one thing I, I like to say to, you know, we, we don't, we don't all of us um, have uh, make choices that affect others that way. But when we do, I think it's important to think about it. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I do. I, and I find this fascinating, because it is calling upon us to think about our processes a little bit, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's a quiet thing. You know, it's very personal. It's very quiet. It gives another view of the mindful life. I think that's right. And I do want to say too, that although uh, it's quiet, it's, it's hidden. Uh, One of a title for my book I wanted for a while, my editor wouldn't accept it. I wanted to call it the hidden life of learning. And because hiddenness, quietness, littleness is a big part of what I'm interested in. I mean, you think about the learned taxi driver, you know, there are these people, they've, they've learned everything. They know everything about some subject, but they're not professionals. They do something completely different and you only discover them by chance. So on the one hand, it's very hidden and quiet and little, and that's beautiful. On the other hand, I think if we talked about it more and, and honored that kind of thing more, then we could help all of us to, to value what really matters in ourselves uh, and in others. I like that. And it does, well, it, maybe it hides in plain sight, right? It's there. Exactly, exactly. But yeah. if you don't know what to look for, you miss it in, in it- a blink. Exactly. That's why talking about it is important because, you know, if you, it's right in front of you everywhere. Um, You start paying attention to whether or not the people that you know learn or how they learn or how they think or how they understand or how they contemplate. You will see everyone that you know differently. Uh, Everyone has something going on of this kind. Um, And it's, it's a delight, constant delight to me to, to discover Uh, these things. I've got a good one. I was in an Uber in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, and I had a driver who was from Pakistan. And he was a registered, he was a chartered accountant from England. That's where he took his education. He ended up in an arranged marriage with a woman in Toronto. Things did not go very well for him with the marriage. They got a divorce And he was trying to earn extra money to get back to Pakistan, where his father was running 
a small boutique hotel up in the mountains. And he proceeded to tell me that he learned how to import trucks from the United States to Canada because there was a there's a shortage of used cars in North America. And now he knows how to import absolutely everything. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, no, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And, <laughs> and this is a kind of knowledge where, you know, I, I want to know what it now I want to know what it is having heard your story. Like, what does it mean to know how to import things? What exactly are the mechanisms? Yeah. What's the instruments? Because it's like the weeds, right? It's these things which are there all the time. You don't even think about them. But once you take a look, this whole dimension of our lives opens up. And he was adorable. He said, I did it with a friend and in, in like three days, we figured it out. We made $3,000 on the first truck and then we, <laughs> and then we made more on the second truck and, and he says, now I can do anything. And I was like, you can do anything. You figured it out. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. Yeah. But this is, I think what you're talking about, right? Is this, this little nooks and crannies or the, the dark hallways of our lives that we sometimes don't step into. I, I think that's right. Yeah. That prove us to be, you know, smarter, better, and more clever than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, one of the, one of the sets of stories that I love most about this kind of thing and that I collect is um, stories about prisoners, about people in prison. Who, oh, yeah. Um, the who, attorneys. <laughs> uh, it, well, they, they, well, that's true. A lot of them become attorneys. Um, but you know, I always look for the more contemplative. So, you know, Malcolm X, the great um, African-American activist, uh, he was put in jail for, for theft as a young man. And he read the entire prison library and he came out a different person. He read classics of philosophy. He read atlases. He read dictionaries. He read everything. And it made him who he was. Um, it, it helped him to understand the kind of person that he wanted to be. And there's there are Literally, once you see one of those stories, you see them everywhere. Um, it's just incredible what um, a certain amount of uh, either a need or an empty space or an unexpected turn of events. And suddenly the capacity to learn just gets opened up in this tremendous way. If we pay attention and we roll up our sleeves and dive in for the sake of the diving, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Zena Hitz, thanks for being with me today. We're talking about Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. To learn more about Zena Hitz and her work, please visit zenahitz.net. And on Twitter, you can find her at Zena Hitz. Zena, thanks a million for sharing part of your day with me. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was a pleasure. I feel the same way. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Zena Hitz, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit 
HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mangeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>